When you think about your working life, you probably can divide it into three clean chapters. Your education, your career, and your retirement. And when you're in one of these three stages, you're devoting the bulk of your time and energy to doing it full-time. You go to school full-time, so you can work full-time, so you can retire full-time. Linda Gratton, professor of management at the London Business School, has for the past several years been questioning these long-held truths, asking, will it always be this way? What if humans begin living what Linda calls a multi-stage life, where education, career, and retirement are all blended into one? What might organizations look like in that future? I'm Chris Weller, and you're listening to Your Brain at Work from the NeuroLeadership Institute. In today's episode, I'm joined by Linda Gratton, Professor of Management at the London Business School, and Dr. David Rock, co-founder and CEO of the NeuroLeadership Institute. Our discussion covers a range of issues related to the future of work, such as the effects of an aging workforce, the need for continuous learning, and whether employees of the future will take their cues more from brain science or computer science. Linda and David, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Chris. Good to be here. Great to be here, Chris. So, Linda, NLI runs a research institute around making organizations better for humans through science. And I know that you run a research institute around the future of work, among other things. Can you tell us a little bit about what you study and how you study it? Well, for the last 10 years, the Future of Work uh, Research Consortium has really uh, partnered with companies all around the world to really take a look at how they're preparing for the future and some of the most important aspects that they see shaping their organization, but also the everyday work of employees. I think the things that are really exciting are this extraordinary sort of configuration between three of the major trends that are shaping work. One, of course, is technology, machine learning, robots, are all changing how work is done and how we interface with technology. Uh, The second is my own area of interest. Uh, I wrote, of course, the book, The 100-Year Life, which is that we're living longer, and that means that we're working longer, probably into our 70s. And so we have to think about redesigning our lives. But thirdly, I'm also interested in social trends, particularly family structures, and how people are working together in families to really support the sort of lives they want. And the configuration of those three trends is leading to some really fascinating outcomes, both in terms of how people prepare for the future and indeed what they're going to be really focusing on. So when it comes to that preparation, I mean, are people prepared? Are organizations prepared? Well, in my view, there are two questions that everybody should ask of a company. One is, is this place going to help me stay healthy? And secondly, is this place going to help me learn? Because we believe, and we being my co-author, Andrew Scott, believe that we're moving from a design of life, which is the three-stage life, full-time education, full-time work, full-time retirement, to something that's much more flexible. We call it the multi-stage life. And really to live that life and to be working into your 70s, you need to be healthy right the way through your life, but you also need to be constantly learning. Yeah, I think, you know, know, what you're seeing correlates with what we're seeing in organizations, which is this, this passionate desire to create a learning culture. And they're often thinking about it through the lens of employees having a growth mindset, right? They want, they want to have a growth mindset culture. They want you know, everyone to be passionate about learning and 
Microsoft's uh, CEO, Satya Nadella, talks about, um, you know, being a learn-it-all rather than a know-it-all. It's, it's challenging, though, because sort of two reasons. One is companies are set up to scale and, you know, do repeated things that, that can be codified more so than, you know, constantly changing. Um, and the second thing is the human brain is not built for constant change. It's actually built to kind of codify things and then do them without having to think also. So both, you know, companies and brains prefer kind of stability and consistency and to, to a certain extent. And so it's an interesting challenge. You know, can I just push back on that for a moment, uh, yeah. David? I totally agree with you about that. But, you know, one thing that we know about the brain, and of course you know very well, is it's very ignited by curiosity. And I think that that's the way through really, is how do you help people be curious about their world and curious about how it's going to change and therefore curious about what they do to prepare for that change. It might be that you're using amazing technology to really help people to learn. It might be that you're really coaching as as Microsoft is so that you're, you're using your managers to coach people to learn. It could be that you're setting up communities of interest and communities of learning. I mean, I think it really depends on your own unique culture. But I would say that if you can help your employees be curious about themselves, about the future, that for me is a really good start. You know, curiosity is the first step to reflection and insight and you know, paying attention differently. And I, I agree with you. It, all, it really all starts with curiosity. Yeah, I, I would say that there's probably a distinction to be made also. And you're curious when you're in the right frame of mind. You're in a toward state. You want to embrace new things as opposed to being in this fearful state where you are shying away and you're less curious and more just fearful and you don't really care about what's new. If, if anything, you care about it to a negative extent. Chris, I agree. And I think one of the challenges is that in terms of technological change, quite a high proportion of employees are very concerned about that. And so their concern, as you rightly say, reduces their curiosity. So how can we help people be curious about how they can act around technology? How does an organization create an environment where people are sufficiently relaxed and sufficiently curious that they're able to embrace some of the changes that we know will be taking place in terms of technology, but also in terms of longevity, you know, living longer. We think that it's really important that people experiment, become pioneers. And and that's really, for me, one of the essentials for the future, learning to be a pioneer. We think of changes the companies are trying to make in three kind of phases, setting priorities, building the right habits and developing the right systems. And the systems kind of define the culture, define the environment. But I think a lot of what companies overlook is the everyday habits that uh, people follow. And by that, I mean, like, you know, how do you have a one-on-one conversation? Uh, How do you set goals? How do you interact at a weekly meeting? How do you follow up on projects with people? How do you run virtual meetings? Like the sort of stuff that's mostly become unconscious and habitual. Uh, we, We think there's a lot of positive improvement available through isolating specific habits that, that organizations are following and then shifting them to more positive habits. You know, when you follow up with someone on a project, don't just say, how did you go? Say, how did you go and what did you learn? And that, that tiny little addition of just, you know, adding in the learning question to a, a general check-in is a habit. And, and when you scale that to thousands of people and they all start actually asking about learning, that's where you start to see it. So I, so I think it's the systems and the environmental stuff is important, but we think the habits work uh, maybe even more significant in terms of you know faster change. 
Yeah, I, I agree. And, and one of the really interesting uh, ways of thinking about that is to use technology to do that. For example, you know, virtual reality, where an individual is confronted with uh, an issue like uh, how do you talk to somebody about their performance and you have an opportunity to practice saying, tell me about what you've learned. Because the interesting thing about habits is they don't just happen in one circumstance. Habits need to be developed across a range of situations. And so the more that you can help people engage with those situations and rehearse in those situations, the more likely you are to build habits. Yeah, I know that's true. There's some really interesting technologies starting to come out. We're in an era where we're going to see huge change in how people think about learning and, and, and learning and development, which is great because it's learning is incredibly inefficient. We're going to take a quick break, but more with Linda and David and the importance of feeling in control in just a moment. Stay with us. Your brain at work isn't just a podcast. It's also a smartwatch and a coffee maker. Okay, not really, but it is a blog too. If you're someone who can't get enough of the science-business combo, you can devour article after article on a full menu of topics. Culture change, diversity, inclusion, learning, and more. Each one is sure to leave you with a fresh, science-based perspective on some of the oldest challenges facing leaders and organizations. To visit the Your Brain at Work blog, visit neuroleadership.com slash blog. One thing uh, that's coming up for me is there's this interesting line between using technology to help people learn and improve, and then also, David, to, I think, more what you're saying, using these small conversational kind of tweaks, saying, what did you learn? And there's an interesting, I think, dichotomy there with, like, the technology versus just the conversation. And I'm curious to the both of you, what role do humans play and what role does technology play in shaping this new learning and adapting I'm sure it's a balance of some sort, but is it 90-10, 50-50? What kind of comes think, up for you? I think the challenge right now, one of the, from my perspective, and then you know, I have a different view, but one of my perspectives on this is I think we, we don't have any good first principles um, when it comes to, particularly when it comes to learning and adult learning. We don't have good first principles. Like, you know, what are we really solving for? Um, and in, in the absence of first principles, you know, you can just do anything. We've been trying to look at this from a brain perspective and say, uh, what, what are the necessary conditions for learning, like the minimum viable product? And how do you do that at scale and sort of test it and all that? I, th- I think that your point about first principles, David, is absolutely right. And it's so useful when we design something. I, I would add to that, you know, that another first principle could be that you have an opportunity to, um, to work through that habit or that behavior in multiple situations. Um, and I, right. I think that's another principle is that the more that you generalize from the, specific, the particular to, to a broader set of circumstances, the more likely you are to, to learn. So, but I totally agree with you that having some agreement about first principles is enormously helpful. And, and the three that you've described sound, sound, sound absolutely great. There are hypotheses for us at the moment, and we're doing many, in a sense, experiments, you know, using them. But the data we're getting back is incredible. Um, you know, when you, you, just kind of, you just kind of solve for this and you say, hey, you know, how can we get people to have insights with others, you know, one at a time over time? What are some creative ways of doing that? And when you just sort of ask that question, you come up with these, you know, massively scalable um, ways of working that, that from our data end up being far more powerful in terms of behavior change than, you know, anything you could do in a classroom. 
I mean, uh, you know, David, what I what I really like about what you're talking about, and indeed what you do with you, with the institute is that you run experiments. And, you know, I speak as an academic uh, and, you know, academics in general uh, set up hypotheses and then run experiments and decide which of them uh, is most likely. And, and I think in organizations, we don't, people don't really do that very much. Um, they, run, they run a pilot, um, but they don't really run an experiment. And I think that if we really want to learn more about how adults learn and how do you build a learning environment, you do need a null hypothesis as well, which says, here's a group that we're doing something else with. What then happens? Because I think those are the really big insights when you're comparing different groups who are going through different different um, situations. Yeah, it's really important. Control groups and seeing yeah. the difference is happening. It's super important. It's it's hard to get organizations on board with doing it sometimes, but when, when we can do it, it's it's, it's so important and helpful and insightful and, and often surprising. So Linda, something you mentioned earlier, you asked two questions about, is it work that helps me learn and does it help me stay healthy? So you spoke a little bit about why those are important. Can you maybe help us understand what happens when those are missing and what it means to get them back? Well, um, in quite a lot of places it is missing. So we know we know what that is. So that work that doesn't help me stay healthy tends to be, um, you know, work where the design of jobs is very stressful or the actual physical, uh, the physical design of the job is stressful. Pe- people aren't sitting comfortably. They're not, they don't have access to decent air quality and so on. Um, but it could also be the psychological design of, of work. And that's why if you take a look at a well-being and the data on stress, stress levels are, are, are very high right around the world right now. And so um, it's not that most places are healthy. I think a lot of places aren't healthy. And that seems to me to be a real focus right now. And actually, one of the variables that seems to impact healthy workplaces is the level of autonomy that people have. So actually, some Uber drivers, for example, or anybody working in the gig economy, sometimes people say that's bad work. But actually, in general, because people have more autonomy and more freedom, it means they can manage their stress a little bit easier. So it isn't just as simply as saying, you know, is it a manual job or is it a cognitive job? If people have control over when and where they work, that's that's a really good thing. And some uh, cognitive jobs are very stressful because people have very little autonomy. Yeah, the autonomy issue comes up a lot. In fact, there's there's a couple of really interesting studies on that. One, they let people have a couple of choices about their office. Uh, they're all getting cubes and they're all getting sort of roughly the same cube, but they're allowed to choose, like, I can't remember exactly, but maybe it was the color or a particular shape or what they had in there. And you saw a huge increase in productivity. I don't remember the exact number, but it was definitely a, a large increase in productivity uh, against a control group, just giving people a few choices. Um, and there's another study uh, some decades ago, actually, similar kind of study, but done in a retirement home. Um, and they actually gave people on one floor, um, I think, again, it was three, I'm not 100% sure, but I think three options, like what kind of plant, what kind of art, um, something else. And uh, what they found actually was the death rate halved in that group, which was incredible when you think about it. So there's, there's a lot of studies like this showing that, that people feeling like they have control uh, is, is, is an enormous stress factor. In fact, it's, it's the difference between control, what, what feels like controllable stress and uncontrollable stress is the sense that you have. Maybe that sounds obvious, but 
um, or out of control stress and stress that you feel is manageable, maybe a better way to describe it. Uh, and um, I think, David, yeah. just following on from that comment, the main, uh, you, you know, certainly the choices you make gives you autonomy, but I think the other major source of autonomy is autonomy over your time. You know, so do you yeah. have some flexibility of time? And and actually, in my own work with companies now, if I were to, if, you know, they say, what are the two or three things we should be focusing on? One of them is certainly flexibility so that people have a, ch- a, a chance to, um, you know, to build uh, their relationships with their family and friends. They have a chance to do some training. They have a chance to be explorers, to be curious about the world. That for me, the autonomy of time is is really central. So, you, you mentioned a little bit, Linda, that you are seeing the you know positive answers to your questions are missing in a lot of companies. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of work? Maybe in certain regards, maybe it's not so black and white. Chris, I'm not really optimistic or pessimistic. I think I'm sort of realistic. Really, um, we've been studying the future of work. We started the consortium uh, ten years ago, and um, what I would say in general is that it's pretty straightforward to predict the next five years, but very difficult to predict beyond five years. So we we personally don't do that. I know there are some who do, but that's not what we do. Um, but I think, you know, what's coming down is, uh, with regard to technology, are just a, a much more sophisticated uh, work-based technologies are going to be developing very, very quickly. And that means that some of those are going to augment the way that we work. Some of them are going to replace them. So there's a big upskilling and reskilling agenda. And I think, secondly, uh, we're working longer. Um, The average age of populations is much older than it was. The population is aging. And so we also have to really confront our stereotypes about what it is to be 40 and 50 and 60 and 70 and 80. But I think there are things that companies can do. I mean, David's made some really good suggestions, which is the habits of talking about learning as part of everyday life. I think there's also, um, you know, role modeling. So senior executives, if they're seen to be taking time out to learn new things uh, or or to talk to people about what they've learned, that's really impressive. And there are some wonderful technologies. So, for example, some of the companies we work with have got uh, really good technology-based platforms, which really push interesting learning uh, to people, but also engage them in a learning community. Tata Consulting Services, for example, 450,000 people are really connected to each other, learning from each other. And that's really the joy of technology. AT&T are doing some wonderful work to really put time and effort into upskilling a workforce that has to be totally upskilled, as indeed Microsoft did a decade ago. So there are businesses where the business model is totally transforming, and there has to be you know real focus on reskilling people, often to move into customer orientated jobs. And that was that's been the AT and T move, and indeed it was Microsoft moves. But take a look, for example, at, at uh, Westpac in Australia, where. Uh, cashiers are now doing different types of work because quite a lot of the simple aspects of their job is now done by a machine. So they've really got to migrate up to providing a much higher level of customer interaction, customer service. Again, they've built a a really fabulous uh, platform that helps people to do that, to interact with each other, to learn from each other. You know, people post learnings, 
uh, they post ideas. So, I mean, what, what, what we're seeing is, you know, some companies become not just individual learners, but whole communities of learners. And that's been absolutely fascinating because it really is about behaviors. And when you understand what those behaviors are, because you hear people talking about them, that can be incredibly powerful. Linda, I love that. And I think that's a great place for us to wrap up. Uh, I wanted to thank you and David for joining me today. Thanks, Chris. I'd really appreciate it. And it's lovely to hear your voice, David. Yes, I know. Likewise, it's great to finally connect. Your Brain at Work is produced by the Neuroleadership Institute. You can help us in making organizations more human by rating, reviewing, and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Our executive producer for Your Brain at Work is Noah Gelb. Danielle Kirschenblatt is our editor. Gabriel Berezin, our associate producer. And Brian Crimmins, our sound mixer. Original music is by Grant Zubritsky. And logo design is by Catchware. A special thanks to Linda Gratton and David Rock. And to you for listening. Listening.